the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. A response to, you're a little too radical. Yes, because the dirt that crumbles between our fingers has not yet dried from all the blood that was spilled to fulfill manifest destiny. Because despite all the work, there are days the mirror cackles at my unruly curls and dark skin. Because July 4th is a cacophony of fireworks raining down from the night sky to muffle the cacophony of bombs raining down back home. Because billionaires could eradicate world hunger but are instead eating us alive with greed only to dehydrate the shit out of themselves in space. Because the decayed bones of children are begging to be unearthed. Because the global south dared to defy gravity and was forced to orbit a celestial body it had vowed never to bow down to. Because prophets were also considered too radical. Because the Middle Passage was the most unwilling graveyard to ever exist where nobody was dignified with a funeral. Because the people who claimed to represent us screech at the sight of pigs but still scavenge for photo ops with them. Because Mother Earth is being strangled by lined pockets and empty hearts. Because a bookstore owner mourns his life's work knowing he can no longer bring smiles to the people of Gaza. Because a publicly known rapist just gave a grandiose speech at a wedding. Because your favorite sheikh is fondling little boys and girls. Because slavery is now concealed behind bars. Because the man who beats his wife is the spitting image of the man who writes policies to tear families apart because some of us still believe that the entities dripping of flesh at their jaws are coming to save us because all of this is the true violence they keep distracting you from because every single oppression is interconnected and there is so much work to be done because this world feels so evil some days that i am positive god's greatest mercy to mankind was creating hell call me radical because i don't know how to live in this world without that fire because this rage feels like I am about to burn it all down, because I dream of the day we can build a new world from the ashes, because I swear there is no other way to be, because it is the only way to be. My name is Sara Bawani. I am a social worker, therapist, award-winning published poet, and freelance editor, and I am based in Austin, Texas. So, what radicalized me? I never grew up really liking or wanting to invest time into understanding politics, Um, especially as a young Muslim woman growing up in a post 9-11 world and all the ramifications that came with that. I was a little more preoccupied with my immediate surroundings and focusing on just a lot of other things that were happening in my life, such as growing up in a home with domestic violence and a lot of mental health issues. And what really pushed me into this journey of discovering and rediscovering, unlearning and relearning what I'd been taught and what I knew of the world around me was when I started off in graduate school to obtain a master's in social work. But that transformation didn't really occur in the way that one would think. Of course, growing up in a home that was steeped in so many of the issues I mentioned above, I went to graduate school with this passion for wanting to make the world a better place, specifically for the Muslim community and wanting to advocate around the issues of domestic violence and mental health, and how both problems were plaguing our communities, like these silent killers that no one really ever talked about. 
I'd also further consumed this idea from a very young age that my value was based on how early I could graduate, how early I could start working, and just how much of an impact I could make as quickly as possible until I wore myself out. I also remember reflecting very frequently about money and mostly about the scarcity of it and what it would mean to not experience that scarcity. The first place I began to reflect on the quote mindset of scarcity was when my family was hit with issues of unemployment throughout my childhood really, but especially during the Great Recession from 2007 to 2008. I noticed how much the violence in my home increased during that time, so from early on I began to make this connection between the scarcity of money in our home and how terrible things were, and how our mental health was steadily and collectively decline the more we were faced with financial stress and hardship. The second place I encountered this was when I was hit with student loans in graduate school. Interest is forbidden in Islam, so that was a moral issue for me, and it put me into a spiral of shame because my taking out a loan with interest attached to it was a complete accident. I had misread the paperwork, and now I was stuck and I couldn't get out of it. So I started working multiple jobs with long, ridiculous hours, driving for Lyft and Uber, doing night shifts on campus, walking home by myself at night, and quite honestly putting myself in dangerous positions that would risk my safety because I was so desperate to pay off the loans as soon as I could, while also trying to provide for myself in the most bare minimum way possible. I think I was even on food stamps at the time, and although I was passionate about my graduate program, of course, my performance in school unsurprisingly suffered. But the worst part was that nobody cared. It was a very ironic thing to be going into a profession that taught compassion and empathy and you know, wanting to make people's lives better, but then as a student, being hit with these thousands of dollars in loans with all this interest attached and then working long hours to try and make it morally right for myself, and then putting all that together and trying to show up for clients and make their lives better while mine was crumbling was just unfathomable. And in the middle of my second semester, when I disclosed to my professor that I was depressed and worried about my future because of the student loans, I was almost removed from the graduate program. And instead of being supported, I had to put in extra time and work to prove myself worthy of staying. So this was just the strangest position I'd ever been put in. And that's when this like overlap of finances and mental health really started to show up again for me. But even then, I don't think I truly understood the big picture because I had entered graduate school at a very young age and was operating in a way where I was just trying to take care of my basic needs and nothing else at the time mattered. I don't think I was mature enough to grasp all these concepts because I was just struggling with this idea of like, how am I supposed to help people? How am I supposed to make a change or difference when I'm struggling? And not really from this emotional perspective, really, but mostly from a basic needs perspective, you know? It was once I was able to breathe a sigh of relief, once I paid all my loans back a few years later, that I was finally, finally able to shift into a calmer place. And what I learned from that brief amount of time was that the mindset of scarcity can change you in very, very fundamental ways. There are things I did back then to literally just survive that I can't even fathom right now. And this is not a dig at people who have been violently forced to enter this mindset. This is my anger toward a system that put someone like me and so many others in this position where we couldn't even survive, let alone thrive. And so the third place that really hit was going through the COVID-19 pandemic and even watching the BLM uprising. And I think the first few months of that was when I really began to dismantle everything I had been taught about wealth, about money, about charity, 
and just watching the collapse of every single system in this country and the unveiling of all the faults and flaws that America has successfully hidden away while priding itself on being such a superpower. One of the books that really helped shape my understanding of economics and of the disaster of capitalism and of corporatism was The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which I read a couple of months into the pandemic last year. That book is what really changed my life and really radicalized me, and it's one that I recommend to a lot of people. It's very heavy, it talks about some extremely difficult topics, and it was really hard to get through. I think I read it in the middle of Ramadan, the holy Islamic month of fasting, while I was moving in the middle of the BLM uprising, and two to three months into the pandemic. So I read it at a really strange time, but I also feel like it could not have come at more of a perfect time. So in The Shock Doctrine, Naomi Klein talks about this idea of disaster capitalism, and she argues that neoliberal free market policies have been forced upon developing countries under the guise of democracy because of this deliberate strategy called shock therapy. And it really helped me understand. We hear a lot about how many countries have a really negative view about America, and we know about the bloated military industrial complex. Like, I get that. But this book and the way it delves deep into all the experiments that took place in the global south, thanks to Milton Friedman and his school of economics, obviously it's going to eloquently lay it out much better than I can, but it shows the damage that modern day imperialism has done around the world. And it really helped explain and tie all these ideas together for me about how really everything revolves around power and money. And that is what America's interests have always revolved around. And so, you know, it boils down to this question for me of what do we do as people who have that greater consciousness and understand that we are living in a settler colonial state and that the very land we are on has been stolen that the money we spend and the homes we buy and the people we interact with and the way we just live is inevitably causing harm to someone else. And I don't know how to answer that just yet, because this is just a question I grapple with constantly while trying to balance the ethics of it with the mental health side of it that is eating me alive. But just knowing that we are stewing in a system where all the wrong people are put on pedestals, where we are glorifying the people who have contributed to the downfall of our friends and family back home, whether people we know or don't know, but what do we do living in a country that tends to propagandize its glory when we really know the truth of how much harm and how much damage it has caused and how much it continues to cause? There was a time I really thought that getting involved in electoral politics was the answer, and I really did believe voting was important, and I believe that if we could just get the right people in office or if we could just find the lesser of two evils and put them up there, things would get a little bit better. And then, of course, after this last year, all of that has shattered for me entirely, so I don't know where I stand politically right now. What I do know is that all oppression is interconnected, and that's the lesson that I've walked away with. And a lot of it goes back to two things, power and money. We see this play out in mental health, in the accountability work that I do, which I'll talk about a little bit later, in domestic violence. And going back to my poem earlier, the thing that I've pushed so hard for other people, especially mental health professionals to understand, is that we need to decolonize the mental health field and really decolonize every single prevalent social issue because the key thing we are missing in our analysis is that every single agenda of anyone in power ties back to money, retaining power and money. And a system like that, one that is not human-centered but is profit-centered, is not working and will not work sustainably long-term. So one of my very first jobs as a social worker right out of graduate school was at a nonprofit where I provided free therapy, education programs, and case management. 
and I began to meet a lot of interesting folks with a variety of different complexities. And the thing that I just kept coming back to was, you know, I can't therapy away some of these problems. I went to school really wanting to help bring awareness to and work with victims of domestic violence or wanting to help bring awareness to very real mental health issues that were plaguing young people, especially. But the financial stress that people encountered, like if they weren't able to provide for their kids, if people weren't able to, you know, work in a job that provided them with a comfortable living wage, if they went to sleep hungry, like weren't those mental health issues too? And if their basic needs weren't being met, how did we expect them as a society to have sound emotional health and try to climb the uphill battle of barriers we've placed in their way to succeed? If we just provide people with a living wage, if we stop redlining communities and stop having bloated police budgets and stop distributing funding to communities based on race and how much they, quote, contribute to society, you can cut mental health issues in half. You can cut domestic violence in half, substance misuse in half, child abuse, the school-to-prison pipeline, etc. You can cut it in half. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. I think back to my own example of how I operated in the mindset of scarcity and can't imagine that being someone's every day. And it was just astounding to me how much this was not touched on in the discourse about mental health. They did talk about it in my graduate program, but not enough, not as the true root cause which of course is where I even begin to evaluate what role the education system has in indoctrinating us with certain concepts and ideas. Even social work itself has very strange roots. The profession is fairly new, and it started from two different movements. One was the Hull House and Settlement House projects by Jane Addams, and it was a communal environment that focused on providing resources to people who were struggling, equipping them with financial and economic resources to help them back on their feet, and spent a lot of time working not with individuals to fix their individual problems necessarily, but on society-wide problems that they were advocating to eliminate. And then there were the charity organization societies, which very much focused on this idea that people themselves were the problem, and that if you just rewired them enough just the right way, or taught them how to be better through relationship building between the rich and successful versus the poor and unsuccessful, they would eventually escape out of poverty. Those two very different systems, two very polar opposite viewpoints combined into social work, and is actually the basis for what shapes our politics in America today, the idea of individual responsibility versus collective responsibility. Social work is also part of the bigger umbrella of the counseling profession, and while the mental health profession is so vital, at the same time there are so many barriers and problems within the profession itself and who is afforded access in a way that just perpetuates the same cycle of punishing poverty. I see so many therapists charging an arm and a leg for their services, and while they deserve to be paid a comfortable wage, absolutely, there are many that do very little to accommodate clients who don't have health insurance or can't even afford the base rate. I've even seen therapists who reserve the best or most sought-after time slots in the day for those who pay higher rates on their sliding scale. Again, just a demonstration of another way that poverty is punished, essentially. I also used to not understand why so many therapists didn't take insurance, but then got to the other side and began to learn about their terrible experiences with insurance companies. For example, during the pandemic, there have been horror stories of some insurance companies not paying out the therapists for up to six months. We could also just go down a rabbit hole of why health insurance companies shouldn't exist and how they exploit clients and providers alike. And while still a horrific system, it serves as an advantage for most people who use it. However, for those who fall through the cracks, 
for people who don't have health insurance or can't afford the out-of-pocket rates. There are nonprofits with inadequate funding or resources and extremely long waiting lists. So because of the limited resources, clients who have waited a long time to see a therapist may get paired with one who might not be the right fit. It feels like wealthy people are being rewarded for being able to pay for therapy while the poor are always punished when, ironically, most of the reasons they need therapy in the first place is because of the greater systemic failures that led them there. All that to say, I recognize that even the social work profession didn't entirely do a good enough job of preparing me for what was out there or tying together all the loose ends to help explain the conditions we are living in, the way that America is literally crumbling and what the true cause of that is, and it all ties back to money. Another thing that I believe has contributed to this collective decline of mental health over the last several years, and especially this past year, is the way that this society lives and thrives on competition. There's that evolutionary idea of survival of the fittest, and it's meant to apply to animals, really, but the way that we have brought it into our schools or, you know, when it comes down to our money and when it comes down to grades, like we have turned something that's supposed to be more tangible and qualitative into something quantitative. I remember being in college and high school, and what I talked about at the beginning about being consumed or being so privy to this idea that my value was based on how early I could graduate and when I could start working and how that completely destroyed me. This idea that I had to be at the top, this idea that I had to be better than others, you know, it has the potential to and does for many people destroy the idea of community and the idea of friendship. When you grow up in a society like that, again, we have to go back to what does that mindset do for our mental health? You can't just therapy that away. It's about unlearning this notion that we just have to outcompete each other and get on top. It's like, you know, once you're out on top, what happens? Have you accomplished everything you wanted to? Has it made you happy? Has it made the world around you a better place? I reflect on this idea a lot, and it's also something that shows up in therapy because I see a lot of college-age students and young professionals who are struggling, like I remember I was, just to make it up in the world and pay back their loans and try to figure out where they want to be. And rarely ever is it this notion of, what do I want to do with my time? How do I want to live in this world? How do I want to show up for my community? But it presents itself on the deeper underlying levels as, how do I not drown? And how do I not get lost in this sea of people who are all trying to do the same thing and are all trying to land this position and are all trying to land this job? How do I outcompete the other to get the funding or scholarship I need? And this idea of funding, right, shows up in a lot of different places like public schools and healthcare and mental health funding. And the fact that everything revolves around numbers instead of everyone's lived experiences, the way that competition is trickled down to a few numbers that people have to analyze to determine your worth is so strange to me. And just the way that we've created this super hierarchical system and this way of judging each other is also contributing to destroying our mental health. And again, how much power we compete to gain based on the numbers we produce. Again, I think if we want to get to the bottom of how problematic this is, we also have to evaluate how we judge each other based entirely on numbers and based entirely on calculations that don't actually make sense in the real world and how we even quantify things to do with mental health on scales and whatnot that can tell us a few things, but don't necessarily tell us the whole story. So my thought is, if we all want to survive this, we have to start by unlearning the way we are taught to think about wealth, success, hard work, accountability, and mental health. The way that our government and communities are structured are not sustainable, and the way that we view mental health as this individual problem 
or as something that we can just medicate away or something that we could just smooth over with coping strategies or, you know, someone to just talk to or vent to is actually doing more harm than it is doing good. We are pinning the responsibility of the downfall of so many individuals back on themselves as if it's not the people in power who have contributed to the downfall of a large portion of society. And unfortunately, the mental health field very often contributes to that. So what I'm trying to incorporate in my practice is to truly zoom outward and look beyond the individual and take a hard critical look at the systems that have led us here. Acknowledging where the systems have contributed to the harm that the individual in my office or the client is experiencing and where that can be their responsibility, but also where it absolutely is not. Sometimes moving beyond, like it's not about accepting necessarily how things are, but it's more so about separating what is our collective responsibility versus what is the responsibility of the people in charge and what part do we have absolutely no control over. So it's a very new place that I'm learning to work on in therapy, both myself as a client in therapy and as a therapist as well. And it has radically transformed the way that I approach mental health. In my youth and even in my high school and college days, I spent a lot of time evaluating the way that my community, the Muslim community, showed up in a lot of different ways. I spent a lot of time criticizing the Muslim community, but at the same time, I spent a lot of time working within the Muslim community, as well as volunteering and trying to understand so much of the dynamics and politics that were at play. You know, we're talking about this marginalized community post 9-11, post FBI infiltration, and post American military having invaded so many of our home countries, and the kind of trauma and frustration that leads to in the American Muslim community. And my experiences with the Muslim community, my experiences as a social worker, working primarily with Muslims and a lot of other marginalized folks led me to my work at FACE. FACE stands for Facing Abuse in Community Environments, and its mission is to foster safe community environments by holding abusive religious and community leadership accountable. It's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's a very brand new groundbreaking discipline where the concept of accountability and of publicly disclosing harm that has been committed has really showed up in ways that are very foreign, not just in general, but to the Muslim community specifically. So the way that FACE's work looks is that, you know, we spend a lot of time educating the community on what it means to have institutions and systems that have the right checks and balances for each other, where one person is not too much in power, where power is distributed equally amongst a number of individuals, and that communities have the ability to check the leaders in power as well. So we've placed a lot of emphasis on power because we've spent a lot of time observing the way power and the misuse of it plays a role in oppression of all kinds. And as people of faith, doing accountability work and trying so hard to create culture change in this very staunch but also traumatized population, it involves a lot of really hard conversations. And a lot of that is just reinterpreting the stories and narratives that we were told as Muslims when we were younger, and then digging up stories in the archives of our faith that were never shared with us. Like, as a Muslim woman, I feel like I learned so much about so many things that I don't feel like hold very much significance in the real world, but I never learned about the role that faith, Islam specifically, had in justice, and the way that Islam shows up for victims, and the way that the Prophet advocated for the most marginalized in the community, and what that really, truly looked like. And the way that I see everybody, but Muslims especially, showing up today in this way, it feels very much like we're always on the defensive, always trying to apologize for our role in something that had nothing to do with us. Thinking back to 9-11 and thinking back to the way the narrative against Muslims really changed here, Muslims are always on the defensive. And what FACE does 
is it helps us clean house of a lot of the issues that we ourselves have in our communities that we are too ashamed of or that we are too scared by because we know what would happen if someone in the media got a hold of these stories. We saw what happened to the Catholic Church when the sexual abuse scandal was ripped wide open, but here we are talking about the Muslim community, which is an extremely marginalized community. The thing to know, though, is that abuse in religious communities is not exclusive to one faith or the other. In fact, it's not even exclusive to religious communities. Again, it's just about the dynamics of power and money, once again, that play a role in how these issues show up. So what FACE is most known for, besides educating the community and trying to create culture change, is also for these investigation reports that we put out about leaders who have abused their positions of power, specific to physical, sexual, financial, and spiritual abuse. And we, you know, investigate these cases and work with a lot of survivors and spend a lot of time interviewing a lot of different people that have been involved in, you know, wanting better for their community. And while this is not meant to be a diversion from justice, it is an alternative model of what community accountability looks like. Of course, if we go further into transformative justice, these concepts that we really love and want to incorporate at some point, there's not much that can be done on that level for the perpetrator unless they want to play a role in apologizing or wanting better for themselves and for the community. So what FACE essentially does is we put the community on notice and we disrupt the dynamics of power that are at play, regardless of whether or not a perpetrator of abuse is ready to hold themselves accountable or admit that they've crossed a serious boundary that they've been entrusted with. We want to put the community on notice so that they can make sure they know what's happened and they know that this person is not to be trusted in this kind of position ever again. A lot of the ways that this battle has played out is via social media or the internet, but coming back to these concepts of power and oppression and what happens when people have too much of it, and then what happens when institutions are scared of their reputation, not just by the opinions of their own communities, but then also by the opinions of the greater media, you know, this has all made for some very complicated issues that FACE is taking on. And while it's a very small organization, and while there's so much work to be done, I'm really proud to work with a group that is creating that kind of culture change, even minimally, and bringing some of these issues to the forefront. Again, the role of money has showed up here very much. So one of the things we talk about in the culture change piece and in some of the trainings that we provide is about how a few things are prioritized, unfortunately, in favor of the person who has abused. And that is often the reputation of the abused, the reputation of the institution, and the money piece that will be impacted if something like this abuse comes to light. You can check out their work at www.facetogether.org. And so again, when we are a society or we are a people that focuses primarily on the numbers and we focus on the funding and we focus on the money, again, we're talking about a community that has been marginalized to some extent and has very much been a target of the media in so many ways. But it's unfortunate that I see so much of our community fall into the same pitfalls that, you know, got us where we are in the first place as a country. And the thing I personally push back against is the role that wealth and finances and charity and money play in our lives. I think unless our communities learn to reckon with this, not just the idea of money, but also power and oppression and how it unfortunately shows up in our communities, just like it shows up everywhere else, our institutions aren't going to survive unless we reevaluate all these things because it's not sustainable. There's a quote I want to close out with that I turn back to when I often feel hopeless, and it goes, Nothing in the world is the way it ought to be. It's harsh and cruel, but that's why there's us. It doesn't matter where we come from, what we've done or suffered, or even if we make a difference. 
We live as though the world was what it should be, to show it what it can be. Thank you.